Travis Bader, and this is the Silvercore Podcast. Silvercore has been providing its members with the skills and knowledge necessary to be confident and proficient in the outdoors for over 20 years, and we make it easier for people to deepen their connection to the natural world. Very often when a podcast ends, the conversation continues. That was the case here, and we decided to press record on a candid conversation where Sean asked me questions he was curious about. If you'd like to hear that, make sure to download episode 108, which is the follow-up to this conversation. If you enjoy the Silvercore podcast and you'd like to see more, the biggest thing that you can do to help us grow is to like, comment, and share with others. It's a small effort, but it makes a massive difference to the growth of the show. Thank you. The underlying goal of the Silvercore podcast is to share positivity and to highlight people's passion in a way that brings value to the audience and each other. To that end, today I'm joined by a man whose parents left communist Hungary in the seventies, is a former professional MMA competitor, is an accomplished sheep hunter, has almost gone bankrupt twice, and is now the co-founder of the multi-billion dollar sales company, Stonehouse Realty. Welcome to the Silver Court <clears throat> Podcast, Sean Zubor. Thanks for having me, brother. I'm excited to be here. I am excited. It was, uh, you know, a couple technical difficulties right at the beginning. Making sure we have a hard drive on scene is always a, uh, a good thing if we want to record. Usually helps. Audio and video. So before we get things rolling too far, like we're talking spitballing back and forth, all of these different things that we can chat about. And that's kind of the, the, uh, I, I find the Achilles heel of podcasting is the best conversation will happen before a podcast. And when you press stop, then the best conversation comes in because everyone's feeling comfortable. Yeah, totally. Right. And then the other one is if we talk too much ahead of time, before we get into a podcast and we feel like, well, we've already told this story, but there is one thing that we didn't bring up yeah. that you and I were talking about on the phone, which I totally off topic of really anything here, yeah. but you met somebody pretty cool down at Venice beach <clears throat> when you're working out. I want to hear that story. So. Long story short, the last couple of weeks have been incredibly busy. So I've been everywhere from LA to New York. Sorry, before that I was in Kelowna, LA, New York, and then Oregon down getting at the bow rack in my uh, new um, bow there. But when I was in LA, I'm like, I've always, growing up as a kid, my parents obviously have that funny accent. <laughs> so um, my dad's still to this day, you can barely understand a word he says. So I always admired, obviously... Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. So I'm there. The only reason, well, I'm there for work, but the only reason I drive or Ubered about 30 minutes outside of where I was staying was just to work out every single morning at the Venice Beach Golds, right? <laughs> the Mecca of bodybuilding. Mm -hmm. So, so there I am just working out, getting my pump on, looking around, just flashing back to every single Arnold movie I've ever seen. He's plastered all over the thing as long as well as all the other champions. And I'm just about to leave. So I'm literally grabbing a protein shake from the vending machine. I look back and I have never been, I've, I've been lucky enough to meet some really cool people <laughs> in the fighting world and all this other kind of stuff, right? Um, I look back and like a little schoolgirl that just saw Justin Bieber or something, <laughs> I'm freezing. <laughs> I can't even like get at my phone to take the picture because there comes Arnold with three of his buddies, right? One of them, I'm sure, is his bodyguard. Sure. On his bicycle, just driving it right up, walking right towards me in the mecca of bodybuilding. <laughs> I'm like, the reason that place is famous because of this guy. And I'm just like, 
in shock. Finally, I managed to snap some shots. And what do I do? Instantly, I put everything away. I'm like, can I go back in? And I start working out with them, like beside him, yeah. like a stalker. And uh. I can overhear their conversations <laughs> and all these things. He was really nice enough to say hello. I couldn't take a picture with him and I don't blame him because at the yeah. end of the day, he'd never be able to get a workout in. I'm sure all the 500 people working out that day would be wanting to take a picture with him. But I can tell you it was... One of the craziest experiences. I don't get starstruck very often, but it's Arnold. It's Arnold. No yeah. kidding. That'd be a pretty cool experience. I watched his series there. Yeah. Did you watch that on Netflix? I did. Yeah. 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 Interesting fellow. A lot of drive. Mm-hmm. Really, really hard worker. You can tell that it's just been ingrained in him from his, uh, from an early age and yep. from his family upbringing. I uh, glossed over some of the difficulties that he had. Uh, I felt. Um, yeah. yeah. For myself, like honestly, today. Mm. We have a lot of differing opinions in the world and politics and so on and so forth. But I, I'm the kind of guy that you can never take away from what you've accomplished and done. Sure. And his rise to fame, what he's accomplished, like, and that was the biggest, exp- like the biggest takeaway. Like, like I said, I've been lucky enough, like I've sat with Dana White like this and mm. he's a billionaire and an amazing guy, multiple George St. Pierre and all these other kind of guys when it came to the fighting world. And I never really had this like, oh my God, kind of moment type thing, right? But when sitting beside Arnold, listening to him talk to his son, uh, listening to talk to a couple other people, I'm just like, wow, this guy really is flesh and blood. And that was the biggest takeaway of that entire meeting, mm. right? Was he'll never remember it, obviously, because I'm just one out of the billion people he's ever met. But What if he from, does? Oh, that would be insane. <laughs> but I doubt it. I doubt. Well, maybe he would. Maybe he like did a police report because I was like a stalker <laughs> beside him. That's possible. But uh, I, just rem- I just remember thinking the whole time, I'm like, wow, I'm like, he's lifting weights like I am. He's right there. Like, it's just, it puts into reality that even though he is bigger than life in many cases, right, that it is truly possible. Like he is, has the exact same blood, the exact same fat, the exact same muscle, muscle tissue that we do. It's just what he's done with it is significantly more than the average. And I like that. And you know, when I say the difficulties they talked about, uh, but didn't delve that deep into, there is a tendency in individuals humans are negatively biased. We'll drive by a car accident and we're rubbernecking to see what happened. I, I think that's just an instinctual thing. So we can look and say, uh, maybe I shouldn't speed. Maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I can learn from their mistake. And maybe some people look at it and it's, uh, it's a leveling process. Well, I guess I'm better than them right now. Right. But there is also a piece to that puzzle of the difficulties and challenges that people have and it's how they work through it because we all are flesh and blood and those who will strive for greater things will tend to have more eyes on them and they'll tend to fall harder than those who don't. Mm -hmm. And you had a really cool quote on your Instagram. Mm -hmm. I've heard it before. It's by a man who has a, uh, an elk named after him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who I just literally visited his house in New York, which where he was born, which was really, really? yeah, okay. really interesting to see. Yeah. So I'm going to read this one sure. because this is what really intrigued me about our conversation that we had. Mm-hmm. We can talk about hunting. We can talk about a number of things. You're good friends with uh, past podcast guest Seb Lavoie, mm-hmm. who says, Sean is a hell of a leader. And talking about leadership in your role and your work and what you do, as well as in the outdoors world, in the hunting and angling. And there, there's a, a need for people to understand the 
amount of agency that each individual has and the effect that each individual can have on their personal surroundings and those around them. And this poem, it's not a poem, it's a, well, is it a rhyme? Is it a poem? What would you call it? It's a, It was a speech actually. A speech. Yep. So, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, of course, president 1901 to 1909 has this one man in the arena. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms the great devotions who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end, the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. I like that one. And that is sort of what I felt is the crux of what you're going through at the moment and kind of what your journey is taking you. Yeah. I mean that, first of all, I wish I had your voice cause that sounded amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Second of all, um, yeah, that's basically been more or less that type of mentality has been something that has really stuck with me. Um, so Theodore Roosevelt, along with many others, and I've kind of found myself along this has really got into like stoicism mm. and it's, and it's understanding our place in this world, understanding where, and it's not a religion, it's just understanding that today is just today and we cannot take ourselves too seriously, but we can also not take ourselves too lightly, right? Mm. And unfortunately, a lot of us get stuck in this thought process of we are who we are today based on our past or where we are going to be in the future. The reality is, is some of that is true, of course, you know, the way you look, the way you act and what you do does reflect a lot of what you have done in the past. However, um, the past is done. It is no longer here. It's a complete illusion. Tomorrow, I could get hit by the bus. We could hit, hit by an asteroid. So if I'm looking for happiness, if I'm looking for something that's going to fulfill me based on an accomplishment in the future, that may never come, mm. right? So, and I feel like in a, what, what he talks about really in this poem or in this speech actually is he's talking about the fact that we allow ourselves to criticize ourselves. We allow ourselves to criticize others. We, we get, whatever we do get affected by others, the thoughts and opinions about us, right? Instead of taking all that in ourselves and just creating action, right? In jujitsu, for example, which Seb and I have trained together for, or not together, but that's how we actually met each other. Mm -hmm. Um, they have a saying that they say all the time. It's like, you either win or you learn. And that's sure. about it. There is no losing, right? Sure. Your loss just teaches you something to do better. And unfortunately, this day and age, and this is really when it comes to this leadership aspect, this day and age, we are looking for instant gratification all of the time, right? And it comes to everything, I, even in like the hunting and, and whatever you may be looking at, you want to compare yourself. And, and it's difficult for like my boys, my age for, or that I have, for example, they're eight and four years old, Hunter and Jack. And Hunter looks at YouTube and he's telling me like he wants to watch his macros and he wants to whatever, and he wants to be a YouTuber and he wants to get this and jacked and so on and so forth. So obviously do I promote healthy lifestyle? Of course, but it is 
we are constantly looking for affirmations. We're constantly looking for positive reinforcement and we're comparing ourselves to what most of the time is not even reality, right? Mm -hmm. Majority of the things we see on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, all these other types of things, A, they're filtered there, you know, or it is their peak of that person's personal conditioning ever, or, you know, they're flashing. And this is one thing I talk about all the time. People that have done well financially, they're flashing all their watches and their cars. And 90% of the people that I know that do that don't have a pot to piss in. You know what I mean? That's like right. they're leasing all of it. Whereas a guy that I know is legitimately a billionaire, you would never know from the, you know, meeting him. He's driving a, a 1990 something. You know what I mean? So yeah. This is, this is kind of, that poem's just really, or that speech is really something that's resonated with me and that type of mindset of action first, right? Um, obviously it's thoughtful action, but action first, don't let other people judge or, or really guide you unless you are looking for that specific guide, right? If, unless that's somebody that's a mentor, maybe a mentor. Um, I don't give a shit generally what people think about me. Right. And it's not something that it's like, I only care what I think about myself. That's not the case. And do I have to listen if I'm doing something wrong? I care about what the people that are close to me think about me, mm. right? Because obviously that's a reflection on how I'm treating them and how I'm, uh, what I'm offering them and what I'm giving back to the world. But in general, if I was continuously looking at what other people's thoughts of were me or about me, sorry, I would be all over the map. You know what I mean? Some yeah, people want me to be paralyzed with indecision. Exactly. Exactly. There's, um, flew into Smithers and you can always tell the anglers, they got their, their rods and now they make, uh, ones that can pack down pretty small. So yeah. it's getting a little bit tougher, but, uh, uh, older gentleman there and he had some, uh, old Patagonia luggage yeah. and some Patagonia gear he is wearing. And yeah, definitely looks like an angler. Anyways, as meeting with a, um, buddy of mine and he owns a, uh, uh, the Skeena Spay Lodge up there and we're, uh, over dinner, we're talking about some stuff. He says, oh yeah, you know, the owner of Patagonia is actually up here right now. He just flew it. I'm like, oh, what's his name? And he gives his name and I, I should know his name, but I forget. Like, can yeah. I see a picture of him? I saw him on the plane. He goes on the airplane and you would never know it. This yeah. guy owns multi-billion, billion dollar company, yeah. clothing company. And he's wearing like gear that hasn't been made in years. Yeah. Yeah. And, because there's a different motivator there. There's something that motivates an individual who is, um, just trying to impress others mm -hmm. to the one who has something a little bit deeper that's driving them. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've seen, I've seen people who are highly successful in life and there's, there seems to be a common trend. There's one where people come from backgrounds of, um, affluence mm -hmm. and influence and they're kind of born into it. But the ones who really kind of go are the ones who weren't born into it. And I don't know you very well, but I get the sense that you've had to fight for it. Yeah. So definitely. So I've always been ambitious as a kid, but my mom's an esthetician. She's just retiring. My dad was a long haul truck driver. Um, both of them fled communist Hungary in the seventies. Mm. Um, I was born in Edmonton. My dad worked on at NOSCO, um, driving truck on the, on the oil, on the oil rigs. So. No, I never, I, I, I wouldn't say I was in poverty or anything like that. Sure. They were always hard workers and they're really the people that have instilled that hard work ethic, uh, into me. But, um, I've, I've always had this vision of becoming something greater. Right? Why? Uh, 
It may sound messiah or something. I don't know. It's just always been inside of me, to be very honest. Now, for for myself, it's never been necessarily just because I want money. It's not, we we're briefly talking about this earlier. I have yeah. lots of people that, a lot of my friends, coworkers drive Lamborghinis and Ferraris. It's not really my thing. I'd rather go take off for three months in the mountains and go find me a sheep, right? Mm. But um, for myself. It's about the same price. <laughs> <laughs> These days, yeah, tell me. Yeah, I, I, I'm still too cheap to go on a guided hunt. I'm going to have to do that one day. Yeah, but um, it's, for me, it's, it's about what I can do with that money. It's about the constant accomplishment. It's about the growth. It's about watching the more that I grow. Like for example, when we started the company in 2017, we had 12 agents, right? So it was myself, my business partner and our teams. Hmm. And so, and we had one admin. Now we have, you know, we're hope, pushing 500 agents, give or take, doing billions of dollars in transaction, 20 odd full-time employees. So the scope of what I am responsible for has grown as well. Mm. So you grow with that, right? And so where I'm envisioning and where I want to go next is more growth to be able to help more people. And I saw, I know that sounds kind of weird, but it's beyond this money. It's creating, maybe it's legacy. Maybe I'm, I'm not sure what it is, but it, it's this passion that has nothing to do with money. And I know that sounds funny because I have money and I don't mean to sound like an egotistical sure. maniac, but I'm not poor, but I feel like as humans, what we once our basic necessities are covered, you know what I mean? The lifestyle that we want to lit, live hits, hits a point. Either we stagnate or we find another reason to grow, mm. right? And for me, that growth, the other reason to grow has been to help society, change society, or just have another positive uh, outlook, another positive voice out there um, for change in what I feel like we're heading down a little bit of a disastrous route right now. You know, Rockefeller was once asked, you got so much money. How much do you really need? Asked this by a reporter and he says, just $1 more. <laughs> Always just $1 more. And was he covetous of the money? Um, perhaps, or was it the process of building that intrigued him to want to continue doing this. Cause I can see that creation process, but if you're always looking for the dollar, like I'm going to be happy when I have X amount of money, studies have shown there is, there is a bit of a point, right? Where yeah, money sure. will bring happiness, right? Sure. If you're not eating, if you don't have shelter, if you don't have your basic necessities met, you're probably not going to be quite as happy as if you've got a full belly and a roof over your head and you're warm and you're, and you've got these necessities, but beyond that. Studies have shown that money is a demotivator for human performance. Unless the task is you build one widget, you get $1, one token, whatever. You build two, you get two. Money is a direct motivator for that. Mm -hmm. Anything that requires a level of creativity or some sort of personal satisfaction or gratification that's involved with it, money has the adverse effect on the individual that the more money you want to throw at that person in order to create more, be a better artist, yeah, right? Yeah. It actually has the opposite, the opposite effect. Yeah. And I can totally see that for, for myself, as I mentioned before, it's, and it's kind of comes back to that whole stoicism, uh, concept is you know, if you look at Marcus Aurelius, who's one of the great Stoics, this guy was an emperor and an emperor of Rome. Like it's very hard for us in today's time to fathom the power 
of an emperor of Rome. Like he would look at your wife and be like, that's my wife now. And that's his wife. You know, he would go off with his head and off with his head. Like Mm -hmm. it's a different level of power. Yet he literally had to tell himself daily that I'm just a man, right? That I will die, right? That I have mortality. That what's the point of being a man if I'm not doing something useful in life, right? And so one of the, and I'm paraphrasing because it's saying it completely different, but one of the things that stands out that I love about what he would say is, as human beings, we are the only species on the planet that can wake up and decide to keep the duvets over our head and go back to sleep. When a bee wakes up, what does a bee do? The bee does bee shit. When a grizzly bear wakes up, what does a grizzly bear do? Does. The grizzly bear is being a grizzly bear. Mm. And every other life form, they're not thinking about tomorrow. They're not thinking about yesterday. They don't even have the concept of time, which is a blessing and a negative to us, right? But we are the only ones. And so what ends up happening and why one of these reasons that I see so many people that are depressed that are, it, it is not even depression, it is boredom. We are not finding ourselves useful to society. Mm-hmm. We are not giving anything. So we do not feel accomplished. And instead, our society is turned into a world where we expect the government to give to us. We expect others to give to us. We are wanting to feel that we are taken care of instead of having this personal responsibility. And if you generally want to feel amazing about yourself, Go do some hard shit, provide, give, and you are going to feel like the person you're supposed to be, right? And I think this is probably one of the biggest issues we've had in the previous decades is this cultural shift of take instead of give. And no matter what, you know, I, I don't know the exact uh, percentage, but it's incredibly high. It's something like 70 or 80% of the people that win the lottery end up going bankrupt within five years. Yeah. Right. And, and, and more than just bankrupt, like serious, uh, depressive issues, uh, uh, substance abuse, um, just don't know how to handle this. And this one thing that they thought would bring them happiness yep. didn't. And, and it's funny, it's so bad that the fact that the British Columbian government, once you win the lottery, they automatically send you towards people with financial services and all these other things, because people are so inclined to blow it all. And go and, and the reason for that is it's not the money that makes you happy, right? For me, it's not the fact that I have a little bit of money. It's the fact of I created this money, right? It wasn't given to me. I know what I had to do, right? Why people always ask me, why do you like doing this hard shit? I'm running ultra marathons and you know, fighting MM or was fighting MMA and you know, training and all this other kind of stuff. Why do I put myself through this? This is this is what actually makes you feel good in life, right? Like I use this as an example all the time, but when you sit down at Thanksgiving dinner with your family or Christmas dinner or whatever, right? What are you bragging about? Are you bragging about or talking about that you spent three days on the couch watching Netflix? No. (laughs) What are you bragging? You're bragging about the accomplishments that you've done. You went for a run. I lost 20 pounds. I did. Is it the 20 pounds of loss that makes you feel good? Sure, you look better in the mirror, but it's the fact that you did shit you weren't doing before. You ate better, you trained better, you did whatever it took to make you a better person. This is what makes us feel good. And I feel like, unfortunately, right now, we're relying on the dopamine hits and rushes of outside sources, video games, whatever it may be, instead of doing it ourselves. 
Well, that's not really a new trend either. I was watching, I think it was Dragnet and this uh, old, old Dragnet episode and they're one of the guys, I forget his name, he was lecturing the young whippersnappers about how they like everything so instantaneous. You pick up a phone and dial it and you're, <laughs> you're able to get a hold of a friend and you have, you turn on the radio and you can hear things are coming in right away. And, and it's, it's funny how it's exact same conversation that's happening now, just with different devices and a different speed, um, that was happening back then. Like there is a natural inclination for humans and for creatures in general, whether that be game animals, mm -hmm. there's a reason there are game trails mm -hmm. because there is a path of least resistance. Other people have traveled it. It's probably going to be safe and okay, that's the place where I'm going to set up if I'm hunting is going to be on the game trail. Yep. People are the same way. Yep. And that level of safety and security that people will travel down doesn't lead to great innovation. Mm -hmm. And what you're pointing out as well, it really doesn't lead to a great sense of self-accomplishment or happiness. Yeah. And just to put it in perspective, like what you just said. So if you're the game and you're going down the game trail, where did you just set up your, uh, your hunting stand? You got it. On the game trail. So where are you going to pop that deer or whatever it's going to be is on that game trail. So it now, are there obviously reasons and what, and ways and why you should take that game trail in life and certain reasons, a hundred percent, but there has to be a portion of your life that you can be proud of. This, these are the things that get you out of depression, that get you moving one step forward in front that actually make you have self-worth. And that's really what it, you cannot be given self-worth. You cannot be handed self-worth. You have to create that amongst yourselves. And I feel like that is probably the biggest issue we're having right now. And I look at society in general is, you know, we always hear that saying, good men make, uh, what is it? Well, help me out here. So hard times make good men, good men make good times, good times make weak men, weak men make hard times, sure. right? And so right now we're in a place, if you look at society in general, is they've never suffered as a society in the last 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, really. Since the Vietnam War, when there was a draft, there really hasn't been an extreme hardship. Now, don't get me wrong. Obviously, there's been individuals that have been on front line and gone to war and so on and so forth, but it's never been forced on the general public. People do not know what famine is. People do not hear anyways in North America. So we are now searching for reasons to feel bad about ourselves, that this is our hard time. This is our generation's hard time. You know, like, I don't know what uh, gender I am. Look at me roar. Like, this is my generation's hard time, right? And instead, we can, we don't need to have global hard times, which was, unfortunately, it looks like the way we're heading in many cases, to be able to make ourselves good men and women. We just need to continuously be responsible for ourselves and put ourselves through these tests and put ourselves, forcing ourselves to do things that we may not want to do, but it's a betterment of not just our country, ourselves, our family, our society in general. And I feel like that's kind of where we've lost in translation. And unfortunately, and this is one of the main reasons I love coming on these podcasts and talking about this kind of stuff is because this is what I'm trying to help and try to solve if I could at all. This would be the one, the one motivating factor that I really have right now. So Jim Shockey was talking with him recently yeah. and, uh, he says, you know, Trav, 
I've worked hard. I've had some pretty cool stories, great successes. I've enjoyed it along the way with my family and I've shared the trappings of my success with my family. And I'm wondering if I didn't do them a disservice, if I didn't do my kids a disservice of allowing them to succeed or fail on their own accord in certain places. And it was a very interesting thing that he was talking about. You work so hard to provide for yourself and for those that you love, those around you, but are you doing them the disservice by not allowing them to struggle? And you're, as you're mentioning, you know, the, the human struggle, there's always going to be a struggle. It's always going to be relative, right? Um, you could have everything taken from you mm-hmm. and still be happy mm-hmm. and struggling alongside individuals, just like in concentration camps, Victor Frankl and his famous quote, and I've mm-hmm. said it here before, one thing you can't take from me is the way I choose to respond to what you do to me. Mm-hmm. Last of life's great freedoms is one's ability to choose your own attitude in any given circumstance, but that attitude is going to be um, tempered by your past life experiences, by the social norms of what's going on. I would think that the, the, the hardships that people are encountering perhaps aren't as, they shouldn't be diminished, whatever those hardships might be, but they should be shown a path forward to something that maybe will provide them with something that's going to be a, a more desirable outcome because, you know, devil's hands idle hands make for devil's work. Mm-hmm. And when there's too much idleness going on, I think you find yourself in what you and I were talking before on the phone, where you feel that there's a direction that some of the world might be heading. That is, um, it's not a good, it's not a good place. Yeah. It, it, to add to that too. And I, and I don't like, I'm not even speaking really even politically, you know, I'm not the left, the right, whatever it is. There are a lot of people on both sides generally that are going down this path of lack of self-responsibility. And what I mean by that is, is, you know, you have the far right, for example, I'll use them because I'm sure most people are going to consider us right in, in, in most aspects, right? But there's a lot of those guys that are you know, you would call conspiracy theorists or whatever. And even if they're right or wrong, they're looking for uh, a messiah amongst a leader to take care of them. You know, they're like, okay, well, we need to get rid of this guy. We need to get rid of Trudeau. We need to get rid of all these other guys. And this guy is going to save us, right? And on the polar opposite, you have socialists, communists, whatever it may be, right? And these guys are like, okay, well, we need to all be equal and this person's going to save us, right? So both sides on many aspects are looking for something outside of themselves to really save them. Right? Why do you think that is? Because it's easier. Sure. Without a doubt. That is the only reason I am generally. And the reason why I say that is, is because is there lack of guidance? So do I believe in mentorship? Sure. I coach tons of people and I, mentorship is something that I'm, I'm a huge believer and I think that's really the only hack in life is to learn from somebody else that you want to emulate or be like. It's a huge life hack. Huge. Um, but I also feel like it is a lot easier to say, hey, that person over there can make everything better. Whereas the reality is I want to be the man personally that I'm the only one that's responsible for making my life better, right? And so it's a difference in mentality that I've seen in most of these successful people, like look at the people that have come from actual hardships, right? And I'm not trying to diminish people's hardships. There's definitely depression. There's definitely a lot of things out there. But if you look at people that 
have literally grown up in the streets. I have a, a friend of mine that now um, is in Kelowna, multi-million dollar realtor. He was homeless nine years ago, living in the streets, right? Went through, you know, parents had alcohol abuse, all this other kinds of stuff. Like that is a nasty story to begin with, mm. right? But he took responsibility for the position where he is right there. Obviously, did he start at a negative? For sure. But him being on the streets, there's only one person that's going to take care of that. And if somebody came along and helped him off the streets, right, that, that's always a gracious, great thing to do. But he's going to end up back on the streets unless he does something to kind of fix what originally was that problem. So I feel that's, for myself, it's understanding that the responsibility is solely mine is the first step to being, and even if it, it one of my clients, she's, um, I won't go into too much of it, but I don't want to, but she, famous model, extremely famous model, um, especially within Canada. So she has a horrific backstory, horrific, but she's very much into stoicism and all these other things. And what I mean by horrific backstory, growing up as a model, she was raped multiple times, all kinds of crazy situations, right? Or twice, she said. And so she's telling me this story and she's sitting down with her psychologist and her psychiatrist and they're basically telling her that, you know, it's okay to cry. Like, I can't believe he did this to you. In her minds, in her words, not mine, they were enabling the victim mindset. You right? see that a lot. Tons. So what she said to them is she's like, listen, it never will change the fact that what these people did to me was horrific. It will never change that. They did that. That's on them to worry about. That's on their conscience. That's on them, right? However, if I want to live in peace, I need to take responsibility for my portion of the action, right? And so most of us, when she was saying this, like all I could think about is hanging these guys by a noose. You know what I mean? Like I, I think most men would think the exact same thing. What do you mean take this responsibility, right? You, how could you take responsibility for getting raped? Like how does that even make sense? But then she says, you know what, Sean? I was drunk, I was in bad spots, I was hanging out with wrong crowds. I put myself in this place. And this is what she's telling me. And she's like, this doesn't diminish what they did to me. However, if I don't allow myself to take some responsibility for it, how can I have control going, uh, going forward? Mm -hmm. Every day moving forward, I would have to be like, okay, anybody can attack me any single time they want. Anything, and I would live in continuous fear. So this was this groundbreaking moment for me when she's telling me this, because it makes sense. It doesn't make sense, but it makes sense at the same time, is that she's enabling herself to take control simply by the fact that she's, she's telling herself, well, these are the things I could have changed. These are what I'm taking responsibility for in these parts, which was something that uh, I'm talking about today. I've never really forgot ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a very powerful tool for somebody to be able to use if they want to try and control every aspect of their life. But there's also another side to that, which is the water is going to reflect your image, right? Did you make it reflect your image? Well, maybe you stepped in front of it. Maybe you have to be there, but sometimes some things just happen and we just have to understand that, um, maybe as we move forward, having that level of control will definitely give you, uh, that sense of control, but in the same breath, being able to let go of certain things too. Totally. Because if you try and control absolutely every aspect of your life, you're going to be, you're going to be a nervous wreck. Totally. 
that victim mentality that's talked about is one that, um, that we see a lot in society. And one of the things that you and I had talked about before was just, you know, um, in let's say the, the listeners to the podcast, a lot of people own firearms. A lot of people are in the hunting community. A lot of people are looking for that savior to come out and say, who's going to be the one who comes and changes the laws so we can get what we want or makes it so we can hunt in whatever area it might be. Yeah. And empowering the individual to have a sense of agency as to what they're actually able to affect around them. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not entirely sold that everybody will, uh, wait for somebody else to do it because they're lazy. Mm -hmm. I definitely think that's part of the puzzle, but I, I think there's a lot of people who are also afraid. Mm -hmm. They're afraid to step up and put their neck out or be in the forefront because they know when you're out there, you might look behind you and see a whole bunch of people like, yeah, you're doing great. You're awesome. But the second things go sideways, you're out there in the wind. So there takes a certain amount of mental, emotional strength for an individual to, to, to make these changes. I agree a hundred percent. And yeah, it, it's a combination of it's easier to vote for somebody or to be that somebody, a combination of fear. A lot of times though, especially in business. And I would say it's even to do with this as well. Fear is based a lot on ego. And what I mean by that is not confidence, it's not that type of ego, but fear and ego play a role. So I'll give you an example when it comes to even what you're talking about right now, but more so even in like real estate, in sales and real estate, we're always out there door knocking, cold calling, doing things that make most people uncomfortable, mm. right? And why do they make you uncomfortable? Because somebody is going to reject you, mm -hmm. right? Somebody is going to, in your mind, think differently of you. And why does that affect you? Because it hurts your ego. It makes you feel like less of a person. And this is the same kind of thing as why don't we stand up for our gun rights personally? Why don't we post something on social media? You know, why aren't more, because <clears throat> funny enough, I know tons of business people that all own firearms that are very more of like vote conservative or whatever you want to say, but they would never post any of that kind of stuff on their public forums. And the reason for that is, like you said, it's fear of loss. It's fear of I'm going to lose customer base. It's fear I'm going to, you know, um, say something that will uh, jeopardize my business. It's a fear of loss of losing my, my, my home. It's, and all fear relates to death in one way or another. We cycle through all these things and, you know, one of the clear things they say is like, okay, well, if I say this, and this is how our minds subconsciously work, if I knock on this door and they reject me, I'm never going to get another sale, which means I'm never going to have money, which means I'm going to go bankrupt. I'm not going to be able to eat and I'm going to die. Like this is how we cycle through these processes if we like it or not. Right. And so to back to what you're saying, and I, and I'm in a complete agreement is why is it that we are afraid to, to make a stand or not even to make a stand, just make a personal statement. And I feel like it's because we have this fear of loss. And then the other reason is, unfortunately, because we don't own a lot of the media stations and we don't own like what I say, we is like the people that in the same type of thought pattern that we're talking about right now. And so we don't have a lot of standard backing 
and we don't back each other as much as we should and as much as a lot of the others do or the opposite opinions do. And so, like you said, there might be a be like, oh yeah, go for it. Go get them guys. And then all of a sudden you're on TV and now you become some sort of gun-toting maniac or something like that because you support firearms. All of a sudden that, that choir that was behind you silences pretty quick. Mm-hmm. The support. There's a guy who was seeing him recently. I guess he's got quite the following and. I'm not sure who he was. Maybe I should have known who this guy was. Asian fellow says, um, I tweeted or posted saying, you know, I, I like the Joe Rogan podcast, right? And I just re, I just re-shared that one. It's so funny you said that. So. Uh, there you go. So I don't know who that fellow was. Should I know who that person is? No. Okay. I, so he, he says, I, I like the Joe Rogan podcast. I immediately lost like 15,000 followers and people are like, you, you got, you got to take that post down. You can't put that up. The people he does work with are telling him to change it. And he's like. No, they, they're calling him racist. They're calling him right wing. Yeah. Says, I, I don't agree with everything the guy says. I just enjoyed listening to this episode and I, and I liked it, but no, no, I'm not going to change that. I'm not going to take that post down. I'm, I'm not making a stance, so to speak, but I'm also not going to just kowtow to the masses so that it makes you feel happy. If someone's got a fire in them and they've got a, a desire to share something with the rest of the world or their close friends or whoever it might be, who is it for everybody else? Provided they're doing this in a positive way. They're not hurting other people. They're doing things that are going to be, uh, hopefully moving towards a better place. Who is it for everyone to say, well, we like that you're trying to be positive, but here's the proper way to do it. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and the, unfortunately what it is too is, and, and I agree with you, everything you're saying is unfortunately right now there's. There's not enough support for people that do that, right? And I'll give you an example, right? I'm, everybody in my brokerage knows I'm very conservative, vote conservative, not to get too political, but whatever, but that's my political stance, right? I have somebody that ran for the NDP MLA in one of our constituents Mm -hmm. and I have no problem with that. I'm, I'm the kind of guy that if we can have an intelligent debate or talk or whatever, or decide not to talk politics, I'm okay. I'm a human being and I'm going to treat you like a human being, right? Unfortunately, right now we're so polarized and I'm not going to blame one side or the other, but we're so polarized that we can't even have an expression of thought. And once we lose this expression of thought, then all of a sudden we start going downhill into so many different things that lead nowhere good. And I think like the first thing, just like that gentleman said, is that there needs to be more people that just stand up for the freedom of expression of thought and the freedom of expression of verbalizing those things that you're thinking and getting your opinion out there. One side, it's okay to do. The other side, not so much apparently right now, but we need to also support those that say, and on both sides, if you agree or don't agree with them, it doesn't mean we need to tear everybody else to bring them down. You know what I mean? We just need to have everybody have an opportunity to say what they think equally without automatically throwing labels into it. For example, like now, you know, and he's an Asian American guy. Now he's racist. Now he's a bigot. Now he's whatever, because he watches this show. Mm. And unfortunately we take too many things on both sides and even, you know, I'm, I'm just going to play the devil's advocate on this. Even the right side, as soon as somebody says something about universal healthcare or whatever, and this is just their opinion, they're automatically a communist. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And obviously on the other side, if you like Joe Rogan, you're a fascist or whatever it is, right? I think we need to stop labeling these things and just 
understand this conversation and support the conversation. The art of civil discourse seems to be a bit of a lost art. Mm -hmm. The ability to separate the argument from the individual seems to be lost. And I don't think that's an unintentional consequence. Mm -hmm. I, I think there is, I, I think there's a lot of power to having people sidle up their personality, their persona, their ego and all the rest with whatever their, their thoughts are at the time. Um, it, it's a good way to be able to, um, affect change, whether that's positive or, or negative change in the masses is to be able to have people identify in certain groups where you can start separating and dividing. And it's not always coming from a place of, of, uh, of evil. Yeah. Quite often it's coming from a place of, of wanting to do the right thing. They see, here's an altruistic idea of where society could be or what we should be able to do. Wouldn't it be great if we didn't have any guns? Wouldn't it be great if we didn't have any drugs and we wouldn't have drug problems? We wouldn't mm -hmm. have, uh, vi violence in the streets that are firearms related. And that, that sounds fantastic, mm -hmm. right? But the reality is a lot more nuanced than that, than that. And the reality of the effect of that is never, never seems to prove out in the way that an individual tries to, to push it forward. So separating you as an individual from some of the things that you might be saying, mm -hmm. I think is a skill which, and you're talking about stoicism, which is starting to come back into fashion out of necessity. Yeah. Uh, and you can see that with, you know, Joe Rogan, for example, I mean, he gets more views than CNN does now, mm. right? So you're starting to see some positive momentum, even friends. I was like, as I mentioned, I was just in LA, the gentleman I was meeting with, um, staunch lefter, mm -hmm. <laughs> if you want to call it that, um, he's now starting, he considers himself middle because which he says in terms, puts him to the right. And it's just because he's seen all the looting, all the things that are happening. He's going through a court case right now because of the civil laws in uh, California that just make absolutely no sense. And he literally is going to have to pay somebody a hundred thousand US um, for hiring somebody that lied to them. But the only reason he has to do that is because he's going to win. But if he loses by $1, if he's owed this person $1, he's got to cover both legal expenses, right. which is $600,000. And costs. So, and costs. So for him, he's just like, okay, this is, you know, we've turned into a society where I can literally get a job, sue somebody and live off that. That's now my new job is suing people. So I feel like you're starting to notice that where that original idea came from of, you know, those end costs and so on and so forth, like you said, altruistic idea, you don't want the poor not to be able to afford to do justice, right? But what we've done is we've attached too much emotion to a lot of these processes, right? We've attached too much emotion to politics. We've attached too much emotion to most things. And it's based on our feelings, not based on logic anymore, right? And I feel like that is one of our biggest differentiators I feel like growing up or I'll, I'll give a perfect example. This is a little bit, uh, off topic, but right now, so our grandparents, the population was about two and a half billion people, right? Back in like the forties and fifties. Now we're close to 8 billion. Um, now because the population, you would think that the competition would be significantly higher to do well in business 
right? But then also you have now 8, people, 8 billion people, half of which are in the middle class, maybe one third of which are middle class to sell to, mm-hmm. right? So in this specific time, you would think it would be more or less even on how easy it is to become wealthy or how easy it is to create a business. The reality is this is the easiest time it has ever been to become wealthy. Mm. And it's not just because of social media and the fact that you can become famous basically on your own accord. You don't have to go through whatever. It's because of the mentality of these people and where where the majority of the masses are not willing to disassociate their emotion, are not willing to disassociate um, the things that make them feel upset and just do the work, do the actions, do the things to become successful. So that's why you're seeing a massive a wealth gap between the, you know, the 1% of 0.1%ers and everybody else is because they're taking a massive proportionate advantage by outworking, creating these systems and doing the things other people don't want to do. And so I, my general opinion is, is that if we can shift that mindset and you're right, there is a shift coming. You can see it, it, it happening. People are starting to get fed up with, you know, like the laws in California where, I think it's under 50 bucks. You can steal anything and you're never going to get charged or whatever it is. Like all oh, these. Really? Yeah. It's literally people are walking in and stealing $49 worth of stuff and they can't do anything about it. Hmm. You have major institutions moving out of Calgary or sorry, major institutions moving out of Ca- uh, California. You're seeing that there has never been such a massive shift from California to places like Texas and Florida and so mm. on and so forth because this governance is creating, right? And it's, and Remember, we always blame government and we always do, but the reality is it, government is our blame. That's right. Right. We're the ones that voted that in. That's the lifestyle. That's the society. That's what we asked for. Right. So we got to be very careful what we ask for and what we're going to put on the government versus what we're going to have to take responsibility for, for ourselves. So my mind's racing. I've got a few (laughs) different things. Perhaps what I'll do is I'll just follow up on a few things that you said previously. And you're talking about, you know, fear of death and ego and that's causing indecisions. Have you heard this story? There is no tiger. No. Okay. Um, guy goes, has a terrible day at work, does a sales thing with his boss watch and absolutely dive bombs, crashes, burns, right? On an out of town trip and. Anyways, at night he goes down to the bar and empty place except for the bartender in there and talking with her. She's a real tough Polish woman and makes him up a, uh, makes him up a martini and, uh, he looks and he says, you know, this is a time when people haven't tattoos, particularly women. It wasn't a common thing. And she's got a, looks like basically a prison tattoo she gave herself and, uh, <laughs> and uh, he says, oh, what is that? He says, oh, this is. There is no tiger. It's what we say in, um, where I'm from, she says, he says, I, I don't get it. She says, well, you know, back in the day, people were running from tigers and getting eaten by bears and falling through ice and death was a very real consequence of day-to-day living. She says, there is no tiger. There's no longer a tiger. And he's like, you know what? Uh, totally applies to me and my situation right now where I was absolutely devastated and everything was falling apart on me. Okay. I bombed. That sucked. There is no tiger. Right. And so, and that's something that, uh, I'll, I'll say to myself or I'll say to others, right. If they're having a bad day or something's going not the way they figured it should be, there is no tiger. Yeah. It, that's awesome perspective. I love that story. It's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that. So 
getting into my, you know, mid thirties, things are changing, obviously, uh, body wise, hormonal wise, all that stuff. So I went to go get blood tests and in my blood tests, it showed up that my cortisol levels were pretty high. And this is before I kind of got back into the training and everything like that as well. So the doctor that I have, awesome guy. I go to him, I'm like, hey, so what does this mean? He's like, well, it means simply you're stressed out. This cortisol is more or less like the flight or fight response chemical for your body. And he was giving me this, I did some research on it as well, but he was giving me this entire backstory on why this exists and, you know, why it is brought up and so on and so forth. So it was <laughs> basically when we were getting attacked by those lions, tigers, bears, whatever it was in the past, this was a hormone that was released to kind of protect us, give us cushioning, do this, all this store fats, all this other kind of stuff. And in certain doses, it's absolutely a necessity mm. that we have to have, right? But majority of us, it ends up killing us faster than more or less anything else. And it's funny being of Hungarian heritage, one of the things that they invented was the theory of stress. So I figured I was like genetically prone to it, I guess, if we knew all about, <laughs> about stress in and of itself. And the funny thing is, is I genuinely don't ever really feel stress. Like even when I went out to fight, a lot of the guys used to call me Iceman as a joke because I just had a very stoic face on it. I wasn't, I wasn't not really scared or obviously you have some nerves and stuff that would be lying if I wasn't, but I was never really stressed. But apparently business, life, everything in general plays a subconscious stress even on you before you think about it. So understanding, and this is what I've been able to lower my stress levels through exercise, food, as well as just mental talk, mm. right, is I did a lot of like transcendental meditation and all these other things and they work. Everything works as long as you, you do it, right? I do the cold showers and all that kind of stuff now too. But uh, for myself it's understanding and being real with your situation. And one of the things that I say, um, and one of the things that's in uh, um, stoicism is that understanding that your fate, understanding that you will die, right? Momento mori. Exactly, momento mori. And so once you understand that and you realize, and it's a lot to do with this story that, okay, this is, you start noticing the things you say, this is the worst day of my life oh shit, everything's collapsing. Like, I can't believe this person did that to me. All these other things. This self-talk is something that we're all of a sudden spiking our cortisol levels. We're spiking this stress. We are creating more than they've even done to us, right? So it is very rare, and obviously you have a, all, all kinds of awesome guys like Seb and so on and so forth on here that have had guns pointed at them that are in front lines that are having to be shot and shot at kind of thing or shoot at, shot at. But- the reality is even those guys is few and far between. They're, they're training to remove that stress from their lives and to be consistent and in that process. But do regular people, quote unquote, do us as business professionals train and learn how to manage that stress and how to manage, you know, like the story you were just saying, to have a realization that everything's going sideways, but I'm still breathing. Mm. Do you know? And I think that is something that once you start managing that, it gives you a clearer picture to be able to make decisions down the line. So with the yin and yang of life, the yep. highs and lows, the ebbs and flows that will take place, if things are going really well for you at the moment, yeah. and they definitely seem to be, um, what do the lows look like and how'd you deal with that? So as you, I think you mentioned before, I almost went bankrupt twice mm -hmm. early in my career. Um, 
I've never had real financial backing. I can say my dad once, because I just have a different mentality. He saved me. I was I had a $27,000 credit card debt when I was like 25 years old or something like that. So I just told my dad, I'm like, listen, I'm going to go into this work. This is how I'm going to do it. Pay off my card. I'm going to pay you back a monthly payment at 6% interest. Mm. And so next to that though, the entire time, it's all been on my own. It's mm. every dollar I've spent from the cars I bought, et cetera. So... There were times where, without a doubt, because I'm, I'm kind of like a little bit of a hypomanic. So I, I do have highs and lows. I, I don't need much sleep. I, I enjoy work. I enjoy being um, out there and doing things. But I try to keep everything now even keel. And what I mean by that is the highs that I may be experiencing right now or the highs that I may be experiencing in the future, I understand that these are just moments in time right now as well. Right. There is a possibility as we are talking about right now, I'm just in the process of basically putting all my cards into one basket or all my eggs into one basket. Mm. I'm just about to, you know, buy out my, my business partner. Um, so it's all in it's, 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 you know, most of my wealth or whatever I've accumulated is going to be put into this project. So I may in two years from now, start working for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? It may happen. But the point is, is that. I feel like when you're in those lows, having the understanding that you can kind of work through this and continue to go and be more in that moment of what I need to do today, not worry about where I am today. And then at the same time, when you're in those highs, understanding that, you know, I shouldn't be out there partying. I shouldn't be out there. It's not that you can't enjoy your success. It's just also understanding that it, it could be limited. And this, this success does not define who you are. You are you right? What defines you of, if, if any portion of success that defines you is the fact that what you did to get to that point, right? The work, the daily habits, the things, it's not the car, it's not the money. Cause we talked about that before. If I go win the lottery tomorrow, are people going to, people aside, am I going to respect myself as a millionaire? Actually not. I didn't create that. Right. Oh. So I think that, that is the, uh, the differential point. Like the, I've had lows within the last couple of years and I'm just like, okay, the, the good thing about success, the good thing about doing difficult things and overcoming those difficult things. Once you've done enough of those, you also start getting a pretty good understanding that, Hey, I've gone through difficult things. These are things that I've overcome. These are the, the things that I'm the most proud of, you know, was I proud of fighting in the cage? hundred percent, but it wasn't the cage that I was proud of. It was all the work leading up to it. Mm. Right. So I feel like I, I try to purposely put myself through as many difficult things as I possibly can, even daily going, you know, I did 20 K run this morning, all this kind of stuff. It, it just primes me for like, wow, that is truly difficult. You know, going through work in the day-to-day -day life, that is not difficult as what it could be. And I think that's kind of my mentality when it comes to the ups and ups and downs is just keeping a more even keel and re realizing that the things that have actually made me happy is the journey, the process, the work along the way, not the outcomes or results either way. If you make money, you're a motivator and you're chasing the money, you're always going to be behind the money. Whatever it is that you're chasing, you're always going to be behind. If happiness is your motivator, I want to be happy. Yeah. It's got an inverse relationship where you'll never be happy because you're already presupposing the fact that you're unhappy yeah. it, in the, in the moment. So what is success to you? Well, success is, you know, raising my kids, good family, 
those are all things that obviously most people want. So that's, that's success. But I think being able to enable others for success, um, being able to be a good guide one way or another, or, uh, a voice that they can, you know, resonate with. Um, these things are actually the things that make me probably the happiest right now, next to obviously my family is the fact that I, I get some pretty cool Instagram messages is like, Hey man, you made me wake up this morning and go do some hard shit. That's the kind of stuff. And now they feel, you know, incredibly, I've had a couple people that, you know, we're going down that negative path and route. And I was able to kind of, they did all the work, but just at least give them a little bit of guidance along the way. Those are the things that I think are successes. How do you, how do you give back to society? How do you help? Those are things that actually make you feel good. Right. Would you, would you say that's an ego driven perspective? Partially. Sure. Yeah, of course. Like, um, and I, I don't think ego is a negative thing, right? I agree. Uh, at the end of the day, we all want to feel good about ourselves and that inherently is some ego perspective in there. Um, yeah, I do. <laughs> well, what's, what's difficult for you? Because if you run a 20 mile marathon and you do it again and you do it again and you do it again, after a while, you know, you can do 20 miles, mm-hmm. right? It's like I jokingly said to, um, Sean Taylor, XJTF2. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Great guy. Fantastic guy, right? And he says, uh, we was talking about the 24 hour relays or not really 24 hour solos on a mountain bike. You're going for 24 hours. I said, why haven't you done a 48? (laughs) I mean, I've never done a 24. Obviously it's an accomplishment in its own right. And, but I'll, I'll be a bit of a wise ass. (laughs) How come you haven't done a 48? But there's always that more difficult thing. What, what is difficult? Difficult for me is going to be difficult for somebody else is everything's going to be, you know, there's perspective to whatever difficult is, but I'll give you an example for myself. It's just, I'm trying to just be 1% better than I was yesterday. And there's going to be days that I'm 10% worse, Mm. but my goal and my, what I'm, my actions and what I'm trying to orient myself is to be 1% better. That, that goes, that's what's it. And if I can just challenge myself to be 1% better. So I'll give you an example. I did ran that hundred kilometer ultra. Mm. I timed out on it. So I only, I did 90, 91, 92 kilometers, something like that. I got a 50 kilometer ultra, the 10,000 foot elevation coming up August. I just like doing challenging, difficult things. It doesn't necessarily have to be better per se than the last one I did. I'm just consistently trying to find growth and find challenge. Right. Um, and it's not necessarily, it's not so much of an ego thing that, Hey, I can run a hundred miler or I can run a 200 miler. Cause you're right. There's always going to be something crazier. And I know I'm not going to be a Cameron Haynes. That's not really even my goal. I'm not going to, I'm not, he runs a marathon every single day. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Or David Goggins. That's, that's theirs. For me, I'm trying to continuously be challenged. And so my business, I want it to grow. I want to be challenged amongst that. I want to be able to help people grow be challenged amongst that. I want to make sure my kids, cause they're going to be their own people soon. Right. I give a good guide and path there. That's kind of what I'm looking for when it comes to difficulty. So in that whole concept of difficulty, and I should ask Sean this one too, but if I were to be the reporter talking mm-hmm. to Rockefeller, yeah. I would ask how much is enough? Yeah. So <laughs> it's a tough question because for me, when it comes to difficulty, it's, it's never really going to be enough. You know, it, and that is so the truth. $1 more. Uh, and it's, and it's obviously for me, it's not the financial portion. Right. However, it is, I want, this is what makes us feel alive. We, the one thing I know, and we've talked about this and 
is I know I'm going to die. There's 0% chance I'm going to live forever, right? So why not maximize my time on this planet? When I'm 70 years old, I'm probably not going to be running. Hopefully I will, but I probably won't be able to run a marathon, right? So why not do that now? But when I'm 70 years old, what am I going to be able to do that's going to be able to challenge me? Maybe it's a crossword puzzle for all I know. I don't know, right? But I feel like it doesn't necessarily have to be a bar of challenge. It just needs to be a challenge consistently. And that challenge makes us feel useful, right? It makes us feel alive. It makes us for, I'm not, I'm not that person that's in bed putting the duvet covers over me, right? I'm out there creating, being of use to myself and the world. So you were talking before about, uh, and specifically back to, uh, firearms, yeah. uh, hunting, uh, advocacy, people looking for others to pick up the torch and, and walk with it in front. What advice would you give to those who are dissatisfied with, let's say the, the local gun clubs and hunting communities, which also that same advice would apply to individuals of all walks of life. What, what advice would you give to them to start making positive progressive change in an area that where they feel it needs to be made? Yeah. So one thing. Jordan Peterson came to, uh, Vancouver. And mm. so literally I landed, I think it was at like 5 PM for my flight from India, mm-hmm. got off the plane, went and took a shower at my buddy's place and went and walked, watched him. I was up for 36 hours. <laughs> so while I'm trying not to fall asleep, because one of the things that came up was obviously that audience was very pro conservative. Like how do we get rid of Justin Trudeau kind of thing? Mm. Right. So, and I know this is not directly with the question, but it applies to it. So what he said that really stood out is he put every, he asked everybody in the audience, he asked, Hey guys, so who here wants Justin Trudeau out and the entire audience? And I don't know how many thousand people were in that audience, but everybody put their hand up. Okay. His next question was who here is part of the conservative party? And then there was maybe like hundred of us, mm. right? Who here has done volunteer work at the conservative party? <laughs> and there was two people out of the thousand people that wanted Justin Trudeau out. Mm. Two people. And myself included, I was not in those two people. So I take full uh, mm. that I have not done the volunteer work. I donate, but I have not done the volunteer work. The point that he said is like, listen, it starts here. The numbers clearly show, right, that there's just as many people, if not more, that believe that he should be out, that there should be uh, um, gun reform in, in a positive way towards us, that there should be advocacy on that portion. There should be a lot of different things that happen, but how many of us are even taking one step? And this is part of the program when it comes to being successful, being anything. It's, it's not, you don't go from making, you know, 50 grand a year to making a million dollars a year. It's a step-by-step process. Gun advocacy, you know, um, you know, the CCFR, all these different types of things, all these different it, it, there is so many opportunities for us just to take one step in the right direction. If you're having an issue with your gun club, they're not doing enough. Why aren't you at their meeting? What are you saying at their meeting? What are you doing to help them? Maybe they need help doing whatever you want them to do, right? Instead of like, we talk about everybody finding the Messiah, like I'm going to vote that guy and he'll change everything, right? If all of us just did one thing right? How much more powerful could that be ever comparatively to one guy? Mm. Right. And it's the same thing. If you see, you know, personally, one of my objectives in this upcoming future is, and I don't mean to get, you know, political again or whatever it may be, but 
if you look at what's happening in our schools right now and what has been happening for the last 20 years, right, is you have a lot of indoctrination, right or wrong, believe in it or don't believe in it, but you have tons of indoctrination that's been happening in the last 20, 30 years for certain things. I had, as a perfect example, in grade two or three, I think it was three, I wrote, we had to write a piece of literature, basically, on our position on something, mm. right? So um, my dad helped me do this. I remember this. And I created a period of anti-gun control. Mm. So, and basically, I just gave my opinion on why gun control doesn't work. Mm. And I used a lot of different stats and so on and so forth in it. And it was well-written. Anyways, long story short, I went into class, right, and presented that. And my teacher, who was from England originally, was completely anti-gun, did not allow me to present this presentation. <laughs> In fact, I had to take it out. I had to now do the uh, thing on the amalgamation of Maple Ridge and Pit Metals. <laughs> 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 Grade three, you're like, what? What? <laughs> I- <laughs> Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, so much so maybe, maybe it was great for anyways, sure. but so much so that my dad was absolutely furious. Right. So my dad sent it to field and stream and I think he still got a copy and they actually printed that in there, which was kind of really? cool. Yeah. But what I'm trying to say is this indoctrination of, if we look back to like the forties, fifties, sixties, you know, I'm talking to some of the older guys at, uh, the older instructors at, you know, mission gun club and so on and so forth. And they're talking about how they went to high school with a shotgun in the back of their truck. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And there weren't school shootings there. There weren't all these other things. So if you want to make a difference, right, we need to start and I don't want to say indoctrinize, we need to start bringing those principles back into the schools, back into the families. How many kids are you taking out shooting? Both of my kids have started shooting when they were like four or five years old. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And creating gun safe practices, creating all these things, it's one step. It, it, instead of trying to change the entire country and world all at once, what have you done for your immediate sphere? Mm. What have you done for your family? What have you done for the one step out, your close best friends? How many of them have you taken out shooting? Mm. Right? Even, even if they are the same belief as you are, as far as like political standing, what are they contributing when it comes to, you know, standing against what they believe is wrong? Mm. Right? So I feel like instead of always looking for one vote to change, what are we doing and what can we do different? I think that makes a hell of a lot of sense. I think the fear part that we talked about earlier, maybe not so much like laziness will play into it. Mm -hmm. Like myself, I will, I would rather do things myself than rely on somebody else because I know what I'm capable of. I know if I fail that I've got one person to blame and not everybody's (laughs) of the same mindset, but I do think that there is a large social fear that we've seen and we saw it in the last few years during a pandemic of not people not wanting to stick their heads out and say things that might be contrary to whatever the public narrative might be. And that fear has been something that's been implemented for a very long time. It's sort of an instinctual thing for people to survive. They want to belong to their tribe. But when you talk about indoctrination in the schools, whether it be from an altruistic standpoint, because people want... Mm-hmm. I think inherently people want to be good. I'm of that mindset and inherently, um, um, maybe if I went a little deeper, they're neither good nor bad, mm-hmm. but yeah. it's, it's how people will, uh, perceive it. 
but you know, you say, I've got a government system. We voted them in. We've got a school system. We voted them in. We've got certain ways that we want them to be taught. And once those processes are in place, I think that's when the laziness and the fear of wanting to stand out kind of kicks in because people are like, ah, the school will teach them. Ah, you know, the government will, will take care of them. The police will take care of them. If the police will just come in and give my kid a stern talking to, man, they'll, they'll start flying right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's where that personal responsibility, and there's going to be a fight. There's going to be a fight there because those who are now in a position of governing, whether that be within the school or policing or whatever it might be, that represents their livelihood and their jobs. It represents a system of others that are in there and it's neither good nor bad, but thinking makes it so, right? But they're going to want to be able to propagate and make sure that there's some, uh, continuity to their, what they know in their existence. So I think that's where the fear from individuals starts kind of coming in and the laziness. Yeah. I think it's just going to become, it's got to more or less come to a time and place that you as an individual are going to have to decide. What do you fear more? The fear of being publicly humiliated or ostracized because you believe what is right is right, or the fear of the consequences for not doing that. Mm -hmm. And that's really the point we are at in the civilization right now. You know, it's, and to your point, I, and I don't disagree with this. I genuinely think most people have great intentions. Mm -hmm. Even the people that I have absolutely you know, zero in common with or thought politically, mm. right? And, you know, um. But they feel they're doing the right they thing. They feel they're, of course they are. Right. Right. Like, you know, and, and many of them come from a good place of thought, but the problem is, is they don't realize what the consequences are. Right. So, um, I was just watching Tim Kennedy and I reposted this this morning. I don't know if you saw this, but he puts four out of 10 Americans, 42%, I think was the exact number, believe socialism is a good thing. Mm. They've never experienced socialism. And he talks about it completely. Go talk to somebody that escaped communist Hungary mm -hmm. or that escaped Russia during communism. Go talk to somebody that lived in that. Go, go, uh, they can't even make a trip, but I've been to Cuba several times. I've never been like, hey, why don't you, and I've never heard once somebody say, you should immigrate here. It's awesome. <laughs> never once. Mm -hmm. People have been fantastic. Every single person that I ever spoke to in Cuba wants out. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the longest standing socialist countries in the region, mm -hmm. right? Look at any of the communist countries that are successful right now, AKA China, right? Really they're successful because they're not really communist. Mm. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They are, you can't have billionaires in communism mm -hmm. and they do. Right. The point is, and I'm not trying to get, uh, political again. It's the fact is right now society is testing waters because they don't know what they're looking for. They're looking for an easier way out. The rest of us that feel like we're on the, the side of what should be or the right side or our opinion is whatever it may be. Unfortunately, because a lot of us have created jobs, a lot of us are now entrepreneurs, a lot of us are working as police officers are actually out there working, right? We have more to lose by voicing our opinions than those that have the same right to vote, right? But are on, uh, social subsidies or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Right. So I feel like we really need to come up with, and I, I don't want to tell anybody what to do. Sure. Right? 
But we all have to, as individuals, come up with and think about what is more important to us. The fear of, you know, being ostracized or the fear of where we're heading. The fear of the consequence. Well, and truthfully, like, do you, and do you have a right? And this is something we need to ask ourselves as well. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but do you have the right to blame others when you're not willing to do something yourself? Mm. And so myself personally, I feel like I don't, right? So I don't have the right to say, well, this country sucks, but I've never given anything to it. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't have the right to say, um, you guys are doing it wrong. This leader is absolutely horrible, but I've never done anything to provide anything otherwise or another option. Right. So these are the internal questions that I have for myself and I hope others do as well. Where do you see your role in all of this? I, I'm just trying to live. So I'm trying to lead by example. That's my biggest role. And trust me, I'm a sinner. I started off as a gangster when I was younger. I graduated when I was 27 years old. I got Mm. kicked out of school. So by no means am I some like saint by any means. And I definitely don't want to be portrayed that way by any means. That being said, I feel like now I've come to a point in my life that I have to live by my moral compass, right? You know, some of my friends have gone through amazing things that have been, you know, police officers, have been military veterans, have been whatever. And these guys have actually sacrificed and given for this country and the betterment of society. So what can I do in my part? Well, I know how to create business. I know how to feel good about myself by doing difficult things and leading by example. So that's the best that I can do. And I, and I can go out there and I can spread a message of there is opportunity like there's never been before right? There is an opportunity for you. If you truly want to be wealthy, there's an opportunity. If you truly want to make change, there's an opportunity, but it has to start with you first. Mm. Right. And so for myself, I never ask anybody to do something I'm not willing to do myself. Mm. And every morning, you know, business related, my specific real estate team, cause I have the company and the real estate team. There's nobody on the, my real estate thing, team that thinks they work more than I do. Mm. They know they don't. Right. I, I literally take them on runs. I take them on stuff and I'm, and I'm not doing this to be like a dictator. I'm doing them so they have a transformation and they can feel what it's like to feel good about themselves. Right. And so that's, that's kind of like my role, if any, and it might be a super minute. Hopefully the message goes across and that's all I can ask for. Who mentored you? Cause you mentioned that earlier. Yeah. So I've, I'm, I've been really lucky and I've actually been mentored by a lot of people. Um, so I couldn't give you one specific, but you know, my work ethic, my, my drive, a lot of that has come from my parents. Like my dad, long haul truck driver worked his ass off his entire life. Right. Um, even though him and I have a different philosophy on money, his is still very much like penny pinching and saving. And, you know, he calls me up once in a while and be like, son, tuna is 75 cents off. You should go (laughs) grab 20 cans. Um, but he's also done well for himself. Right. Um, but along the way I've been mentored by real estate professionals, by guys that are gurus in, in, you know, created millions of dollars in real estate. And the funny thing is with those guys, it's very, I literally called them up and said, what can I do for you? I need to learn from you. Mm. And I did a bunch of stuff for free for them, help them out, but they're always willing to give for people that want to succeed and actually do what they tell them to do. Right. So if you graduated at 27, would I be going out on a limb to say that you didn't always possess, although they may have been in front of you, your father's work ethic, your family's work ethic, the rest, 
you're shown the way, but you weren't always implementing that. Yeah. So up until grade eight, so in grade eight, I was actually doing grade 10 math and English. So I was an accelerated school. So I skipped some grades. Basically what happened, this is, and I don't blame my parents by any means. It's definitely not their fault. It's 100% mine. But um, I was going to a school. That school had some very affluent people. And being 16 years old. I, and Which school? It, it was Thomas Haney in Maple Ridge. Okay. And so at that time, it was actually 14, 15 when I started there. Um, that time it was a self-paced school like university. Mm-hmm. So you just had to do these learning guides and you had to show up for seminars. Mm. The rest of the time you can go do whatever you want. I lived across the street. So Perfect. obviously I was chasing tail <laughs> and everything else instead of doing my work. And then, all, you know, at that time, that's when testosterone kicks in. You don't, you're trying to find your place in your world. Um, I came from an immigrant family. So, you know, my friends were of all kinds of different ethnicities and we, different cultural things and so on and so forth. And I just found myself like, Hey, that guy over there has a BMW and he's getting hotter chicks because that BMW. What am I going to go do to get a BMW? Right. And of course I did stupid shit that I shouldn't have done to go try to get a BMW. Mm. Right. And so I wish, and this is one of the things that I'm trying to do and kind of what I've talked about as I wish there was a mentor in state to be like, Hey man, like you can get a thousand BMWs. You just have to do this, 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 and give it a little bit of time. Right. And implement this and look what I've done. Right. My dad, and like I said, not to blame my dad, but the mentality of the mentors that were around me at that time, even though I had this grandiose vision of what I wanted to be, right. There were, so in Hungary and Europe, they kind of have this saying, which is like similar to get your head out of the clouds kind of thing that we say here, but it's like, basically don't be a cosmonaut because you're living in space. Okay. Fair enough. (laughs) Right. So Um, And it's not that he didn't encourage me, but, you know, I'm like, I want to be a millionaire. I want to be whatever. Even when I got into real estate, he was always worried for me Mm. that, you know, it takes you five years to make any money and this is blah, 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 blah. Now that's obviously gone, thankfully. But the point is, is at that time, I'm like, well, I'm not going to listen to these guys. That guy over there is making a ton of money. I'm going to do what he does. Mm. Right. And so I'm blessed and lucky that I never really got into any trouble. I, I had people pass away that were close to me that were involved in that kind of stuff. And so when I was in my mid twenties, after I got kicked out of school, I came back and I'm like, okay, I'm either going to get into real estate because I was selling cars, doing all this other stuff back in the normal path. I'm either going to get into real estate or I'm going to become a firefighter. Mm. And so both of them needed high school graduation. So I had to go (laughs) back and graduate when I was 27. And then I uh, applied for the Justice Institute Mm -hmm. with my good buddy Ziggy. And uh, that was a couple month process. In the meantime, I was already a realtor. And then my first two months, I did six transactions and made more money than I've ever made. And I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to go down this path. And that's kind of how it all happened. So if you can go back and talk to 12, 13, 14 year old you, what would you say? And you know what the funny thing is? I wouldn't say much. I would show. Mm. And I think that's really the difference is I think too many times as leaders, we talk too much and we don't show enough, right? So if you look at the guys that inspire me, the guys that would have inspired me back then is the guys that inspire me right now are like guys like Goggins, Jocko, you know, like uh, Cameron Haynes. What, what inspires us about those guys? They're out there on video doing it, mm. right? And so- if I could do anything, I would go to these guys and be like, look what I have done. This is how I've done it. And I can show you how. Mm. And I think having actual, because the problem, number one priority or issue with school systems in general, 
Okay, and I and, and I'm not I'm not here to beat down schools by any means because they're an essential part of our our learning and, and eh. society eh. in certain parts, right? Eh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, we, we could talk about that one. <laughs> I, I agree, but the point is, is that you are being taught by somebody. I'll give you an example. Okay, you go to Harvard, right? You pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for a university degree. And let's just say you're going to get your MBA. Mm. The top professors are making 500 grand a year, mm. right? I have agents in my brokerage making $2 million a year. So why would I learn from somebody that has never done what I want to do? Mm-hmm. And that's the, one of the major issues with our schools is we're being told, not shown, told, this is what you do. This is how you do it. And we're being basically taught how to memorize more or less and work at a certain thing and work for somebody, not work with somebody. We're not talked, taught about basic finance. We're not talking about any kind of life skills anymore. We're not taught about any of those things. But what ends up being is, is there's very few students that look up to their teachers. Very few these days, right? And the fact is, is because none of them want to be like that person. Mm. Who do they want to be like? And so now they're following their social media influencers. They're following all these other guys that are driving Lamborghinis that are doing all these other things, which I'd rather have them do that than follow drug dealers, Mm. right? But the point is, is who these guys are imitating or who these kids are imitating is incredibly important. And unfortunately, those schools don't provide any of that. That's a good point. Who wants to be like their high school teacher? I don't know anyone that. Right. Sure, there's some, and there's some great high school teachers out there. There are some fantastic teachers. The whole system of education that we currently have, I think, is is in need of a massive overhaul. Yeah, um, served a purpose in its way, in its time, and it still has some good purpose. But uh, I'm not here to disparage the school system. But I come from a, a background. I was five different high schools that I went to. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. so you know. Well, and the, and the thing is, is like, I can think of two teachers, maybe three while I was in school. One of them was Mr. Bugler and this guy, if anybody went to Maypur's secondary, they would know who he is. Um, and I think he passed away a while ago, but he, um, dressed in a cape and was wo- extremely eccentric, extremely <laughs> like as like a chalkboard professor, a cape, a cape, like a full on like university gown, cape, whatever it is gotcha. in high school. Gotcha. Right? And he was teaching, and this was, I think I had him for grade eight, if I remember, before I switched to the self-paced school. Mm. And so he was teaching a class for gifted students or whatever. So people that were accelerated. So you're just calling yourself gifted. Got it. Well, Go on. I don't, it could have been special <laughs> gifted for all I know. That's just what they <laughs> called it anyways. But, um, so, but what he continuously did was challenge me and what he proved right, was my ignorance in history, my ignorance in so many things. And he, he proved that I should be questioning everything and understanding why I'm questioning and why these answers are what they are. So there's a lot of things I took from, and him and I had screaming matches, just to be clear. Like it was <laughs> not that he was like some, ha ah, figure, figure to me. Like we had butted heads just as much as we agreed. However, he was challenged. He pushed and he was a great teacher. Mm. My other teacher, Mr. B., actually just communicated with on Facebook just recently after not talking to him since elementary school, basically. I remember him vividly because, and obviously this would probably never happen these days, is pulling outside my elementary. He knew I was hunting because I started hunting. I got finished my court test when I was 10. So mm. I was out there right at the hop and I was, he knew I was big into hunting. So when he came home, it was Monday and he just came home from a, a hunt 
went straight from the hunt to, to school to teach. Yeah. So he's like, come check out what's in the back of my truck. I went there and he's got his camper and sure enough, there's a three point buck in the back. Nice. <laughs> so I remember that vividly talking about hunting and fishing and all those things. And yeah. these are memories. So that's somebody that I would look up to more or less. Yeah, right? You but, don't usually hear stories of teachers taking kids to the back of their truck ending yeah. in a good. Way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh man. But, um, so yeah, I mean, now our schools, you know, to go down that path, our schools are, we're more once again, focused on people's feelings versus the actual things that need to be done and taught, right? Like even with all this, I was just told a couple of days ago, and I don't know if it's a rumor or not, so I don't want to spread whatever, but I've heard it multiple times now that they have like, um, in washrooms, they have, um, like what you have for your cat because people are dressing up as furries. So what? yeah, now they're Come squatting, on. they're squatting in boxes. Come on. So, um, <laughs> my mind that can't is, be real. It, it's, I, I, I don't want to say it because <laughs> it, I'm not going to confirm it, but I've been told multiple times from the high school that I went to. And so for myself, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm like, okay, listen, I, I want all kids to feel inclusive. Like, don't get me wrong. But the reality is why are we focusing so much on this stuff when, and this is one thing that absolutely pissed me off to be very blunt. I go into my kid's school and every single, every single, and this is an elementary school and I'm in, you know, the back end of Maple Ridge, right? So it's more rednecky if you would call that, right? By, by all means. And every single school door has a rainbow on it. Every single school door has uh, a, f- a rainbow flag. And so to be very clear, like if, if whatever your sexual preference is, I care less. Like you do you, if you're an adult, I want you to be happy, right? However, the one thing that stood out to me is there was not one provincial flag, not one Canadian flag, not one thing was taught. My kid who is now eight years old has been taught all of these things. I took a globe and asked him where Russia was. He could not point out the largest country on the planet. So it's not the fact that what we're teaching our kids, I agree or disagree with, which a lot of it I obviously disagree with, but it's the fact that we have no priorities, right? If our kid can't even point out the biggest country on the planet, but he knows you can be 72 genders, don't you think we have a little bit of a priority issue on this planet? You know, the issue with inclusivity yeah. and hyper-inclusivity, the natural outcome of that is exclusivity because you can't think outside of that. And it's, it's a very, you know, you, you take that to its natural progression and perhaps it's something that should maybe not be emphasized in school in the way that it currently is, because you will end up excluding other opinions that are contrary to what, the, what the norm is. Yeah in a way that they're trying to combat in, in the get-go. Yeah. So well-intentioned, yeah. good way to go for it, but it does create an exclusive environment where if you do not subscribe to this way of thinking, you are now out and maybe a kicked out. or and, whatever you are. Yeah. Right. And it's, and that, that's changing. I do see. It, well, it, it's just gone so crazy that it's, like you said, it's gone a full circle. We are invoking racism now. Mm. It's like it, 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 there's, uh, there is a teacher, a principal, I believe 
that got expelled, that got kicked out. I don't want to tell you what state because I can't remember, but this is just recently within this year. You can Google it. And basically what she did was, is she separated blacks and whites. This old experiment. Separate. No, she separated it and basically created an apartheid because she felt that black youth should hang out with more black youth. Interesting. So it's not like the teacher that separated the blue eyes and the brown eyes or the brown hairs and blonde hairs and, and created that whole social dynamic. They, she's saying birds of a feather should flock together and, and she's trying to. And and she was black. Gotcha. And she's saying, she's like, listen, like, um, black should experience more black culture with black people and so on and so forth and ended up creating an apartheid in her own school. And so one of the. Whoops. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, but and this is the whole point of what I'm trying to say is this, and what you're, what you're saying is this, this inclusivity, all of a sudden we're like, we're back to 1940 and Rosa, Rosa Parks would be like, you know, rolling in her grave right now, seeing that we are doing this to ourselves again. Well, right? the Plotsman lost at that point. It's crazy. It's crazy. And it's just, I think this once again comes down to the part that is there racism in the world? hundred percent. It will never go away. Is there, you know, sexism? Are there all these isms? Yes. Right. But in general, we are 1000% better than we have ever been. And so now we are searching for things that will make us like, I got a hard time too. You know, mm. like I'm a Z, Z, them, they, they, whatever. Don't you know? Mm. Right. Instead of, because I have nothing else. I, I have food. I have a shelter. I have, you know, I, I get to go to work. I can go to university. I get... I can get free drugs if I go down to East Hastings, mm. right? So much so that they're giving out free drugs and they're trading it in for fentanyl. My wife's a nurse. These people are still ODing from fentanyl because they're taking the clean drugs that they're getting from the government, right? Wow. And trading it for street fentanyl. So the, it, it's just come to this point that- But you're we, not talking about kids there, are you? Kids I'm not talking about kids, yeah. no. But the whole point is, is that right now, these days, life is so good that we need to find- some excuse and hardship that our generation's going through something. Mm. We're having issues. Look at me. And instead of focusing on how do we better society? How, you know, one of the things growing up is, and I remember these ads, like, what can you do for your country? Mm-hmm. Right? How many of our youth, how many of, you know, even my generation and older, how many of us are thinking, what can we do for our country versus what can our country do for us? Mm. And I think, you know, when you ask, what can we do to change things? What can we do to, you know, help, um, you know, our cause when it comes to, um, firearms and all these other things, it's like, what the fuck are you doing? Mm -hmm. You know, what are you doing? And that's the first question we should always be asking ourselves because back to this whole stoic philosophy, what is the only thing we have control over? It's what we do. I can't, I can't force you to do anything, but if I want you to do something, I can tell you the best way to do it is watch me do this. So if the first question is, what are you doing? What would the second question be? What well, a, what effect is that having? Because I think there's a lot of people out there that will do things that have minimal effect, yeah. but they look at, look at all the things I'm doing. Yeah. Look at how fast I'm running. My arms are going so fast. Right? <laughs> and, and so like business. Right. I, I have a philosophy on how I kind of do things. So I plan first. So 
I, in my life and in business, I kind of have a CEO hat and then I kind of have a worker hat mm. for lack of a better word, right? Or realtor hat or whatever it may be. So my CEO hat, I'm planning. These are the things I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to execute it. This is what I'm going to do. And that could be for a week, month, quarter, year, whatever it may be. Excuse me. Um, and then I go into worker and I just execute I, I, I no longer, like if you look at my schedule, it's completely booked out sometimes in 30 minute increments. I'm not, I don't plan what I do today. Mm. I've already planned what I'm doing. So I'm not thinking about what I should change. What I'm just executing, mm. right? So it's the same thing. Like I'm planning to help my gun range build an association. Okay. This is how I'm going to plan. The rest of the time I'm going to execute. Now, while I'm executing, I track relentlessly. So what that means is when it comes to business, I know what my expenditure is, what's coming in, how many in real estate related, how many calls does it take to convert an appointment? How many appointments does it take to convert a sale? And I, now I'm, now I can look and track all of those things. Now, most people, what they do wrong is they day two of calling, let's just say they're, they've been cold calling strangers and they've got nothing but a bunch of hangups and FUs mm. and so on and sure. so forth. Right. And they're like, this script, this thing doesn't work and they give up. Mm. Right. But really you don't have enough data to know if it does or doesn't work. Mm. So I track, keep that data at the end of the week or week two or month or quarter, whatever that, that timetable is, I review that data. And so to your question, like a lot of people are running with their arms, but I've had this question asked more than any other question in real estate ever when an agent comes to me. They always come to me, Sean, I did 10 deals this year. I want to do 20 next year, right? And mm. everybody at my brokerage is going to laugh if they hear this because I've heard me say it a million times. 10 deals, I'm going to do 20 next year. I'm like, okay, fantastic. How are you going to do that? The most common thing I hear is I'm going to work harder. I'm like, well, you're probably going to have to, but that's great, mm. right? So let me ask you a question, okay? If you were Elon Musk in front of your million shareholders and you said, Hey guys, next quarter, we're going to do an extra billion dollars in sales. Right. And they said, Oh, that's awesome. Elon, how are you going to do that? And you said, I'm going to work harder. They'd all laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and your stock would probably, well, maybe mm -hmm. Elon, it would go up, but everybody <laughs> else would go down. Right. Mm -hmm. So instead I always tell them, it's like, listen, first of all, what is harder? Your perspective on harder versus my perspective might be two different things. Mm. I might think hard is 500 calls a day. You might think five is hard, right? So everything I do is I plan, track, or execute, track while I'm doing that, and then reevaluate at a certain point in time that I've planned to, to see what is working, what can be done better, and how can I reevaluate that to plan again, execute, track, and do it all over. Mm. And that's kind of been my methodology for business since day one is if I don't know what I'm doing, right. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the consistency is and how it is and what are the numbers in front of me, how do I know what to better change? Totally. And that's kind of, unfortunately what you're talking about is a lot of these people are super busy, right? Mm -hmm. Have you tracked what you're actually doing, right? What was your end goal in that? What was your purpose for doing that? Mm -hmm. Right. Now, I'd rather have somebody busy arm out there doing something rather than nothing, right? Because I feel like that's most people in cases, yeah. right? But I feel like there's a way to do it that's obviously going to yield a better result. I love that. Yeah, that gives a lot of takeaway for people who are listening. Well, it, I think understanding and knowing that you have the ability to do this. Massive. It's huge. Mm. is huge. And don't underestimate the power of your voice mm. and the things that you do. And I know this kind of sounds preachy or whatever it is, 
But it is the truth. Like entire, the reason that we don't have slavery in North America is because people started changing and it was one, two, three, four, and they continuously grow from there, right? The reason why a lot of the things we don't like right now that are happening in this is because those voices are louder than ours. Mm -hmm. And there's more people doing action than we are, mm. right? And so I know we have this fear of loss and it is a true fear. I'm not gonna belittle the fact that you could lose your entire company by saying the wrong thing these days, right? Easily. I, uh, easily. And I'm not gonna belittle that that is the fact, right? However, we all have to have this internal conversation, like I mentioned before, is that what is your greater fear? And what is your purpose? Is it to leave your kids with something different, right? Or something that you will be proud of that at least I did something? right? Or is it, doesn't matter how much money you have, how much things you saved, but if all of a sudden, and I'm not saying we're going down this route, but all of a sudden we turn into communism, what is that worth anyways? Mm. Right. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that we should talk about? Oh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> there's, there's lots of things I'd love to talk about. This is a great conversation. We're definitely going to have a cigar night and talk more. Um, <laughs> I, I think, I think one of the things too is, is, um, that I try to instill as much as, as possible is, and you see this word being, you know, tossed around a lot, but I'm trying to be as grateful as I possibly can. Hmm. And I think this is something that in business and these motivational speakers, like, oh, I'm so grateful. I'm so this. I'm grateful for the fact that I always tell myself, like, I have two legs. I have this. I, I, it allows me to ground myself into the presence, mm. right? Like, I'm grateful that I'm here having this conversation with you. This is a, an opportunity, and I really appreciate it, that a lot of people can't get just because of time or whatever the scenario is, right? And so for myself, trying to be more grateful and understanding, and if you're looking to succeed, it's very difficult to succeed if you're not grateful for what you've already done and what you already have. And I feel like we, you know, one of the reasons we have lost so much is because we weren't grateful for what we had and we didn't put the right things in place to enable, to keep those things that we've had, right? So I feel, I feel gratefulness is something that I try to be as much as possible. How do you do that? People talk about it. They say, oh, hey, I'm grateful. They'll write it into a text. Yeah. Hey, I'm really grateful. How do you... Do you show your gratitude? Do you internalize that gratitude? What is, what does that look like? So, you know, obviously I'm grateful for everything people do for me, for, you know, being able to even, but I think the grateful that I'm talking about more or less is just truly being, and this comes back moment, moment, uh, mento mori again, is just, I'm alive. You know, and when we talk about like, you've been in your lows of your lows and your highs of your highs, right? It's grateful to have money in your account, right? But on the lows and the lows, that's the time where you have to be the most grateful, right? That's the time that if you really want to get out of that funk or wherever you are in that time and world is the easiest way to do that is like, okay, like, and I'm sure you guys have all seen that GIF is, you know, there's, there's a guy that's looking up. And the guy has no feet or no legs. And he's just looking at the guy with the legs and the guy with the legs is looking at guy with shoes and the guy with the shoes mm. is looking at guy with the bike and the guy with the bike is looking at the guy with the right. car. Like, we're always one step upping where we're trying to be. Mm. Right. I think if you want it to be an actual impactful thing to yourself, 
And I'm not just talking about like, you know, hashtag grateful. <laughs> you, know <what> I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? But actually having some importance where you can feel the chemical change it does in your body is you need to actually be, look at yourself and be like, what am I truly grateful for? Like I, I sat down yesterday with my kids and I got a new black puppy, a black lab puppy. And I'm sitting there and I'm just like, wow. I'm like, I got the dog that I've wanted. My kids are healthy. Like I have lots of kids, like a, a friend of mine, his kid passed away. Like these are unimaginable things. And these things still may happen. You know, like we don't have control of what will happen in the future when it comes to those things. So being grateful, when you, when you practice it properly, and I'm not trying to say there's a right or wrong way, but you will know how mm. you feel when you think about it. You know, there's that, uh, saying a rich person wants many things, a sick person wants just one. Yeah. Yeah. Sean, it was absolutely amazing having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on here. Thanks for having me, brother. I appreciate it.